Phineas and Ferb is inspired by my summers growing up when my mom would always encourage us to do something creative with our time rather than sit around bored. That's her on the right with her fingers in her nose. She used to say, summer's short, you got to make every day count. And that's exactly what Phineas and Ferb do. So without any further ado, here's our show. Welcome, one and all, to the first official episode of the podcast without a cool acronym. The podcast will review Disney television animation shows. I'm your host, Chandler Deroshay. You probably know me from that video I did about Act Your Age on my newly rebranded YouTube channel, Starport97. But I also have a show called Theme Park Backlot that I did a few episodes of and plan on continuing once we can go to the parks without masks. <laughs> Joining me on the podcast today via Zoom, you know him from Theme Park Workshop, but you also mostly know him for his YouTube channel, formerly known as Phineas Flynn's Law, recently rebranded to The Second Dimension, all the way from Orlando, Florida, ladies and gentlemen, Jonathan Edward. Hello, how's it going? What's up? <laughs> That's the, the cliche uh, podcast opening greeting. But yes, um, how has your day been progressing, Chandler? <laughs> it's been good. How'd you like to get into this windowless van? I will avoid it, you know, at all costs, especially with COVID. You know, just nothing, nothing good can come from a windowless van with multiple people in COVID-19. Yes, of course. Well, at least they're all wearing masks, right? <laughs> that, that wasn't the primary concern, but yes. yes. <laughs> True. Next, you know him from his shows like Dave Does Disney, The D-List, Armchair Imagineering, and several videos about Phineas and Ferb, all the way from La Mirada, California. Ladies and gentlemen, David Ganzel. Hello, it is me, the guy what's name he just mentioned. Yes, of course. And last but not least, you know her from the Twitter feed, at Theme Park Trash. Ladies and gentlemen, what was your last name, Mariah? Sturgeon, <laughs> like the fish. Mariah Sturgeon. Hi, welcome to the Canada Pavilion. Yay. All the way from Canada. Oh, yeah. I have not All seen right. a single so, iteration of any of the Canada Pavilion's shorts, and I don't know if I'm proud of that. I miss the Martin Short one. I like the Martin Short one. Like, the new one is good, but the old one had, like, comedy in it, which was kind of fun. I watched the new one on YouTube, and it's like, if you're going to get Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara, why are you not making them be funny? Right. Like, you had Martin Short before. So when I worked there, I had a running joke about anytime I said anything that I thought was funny that wasn't like particularly that funny, I would just be like, I'm a comedian. Oh, Canada starring Mariah coming when? And then my new joke has been <laughs> the real reason that they opened the new version right before my last trip before everything closed due to the pandemic was because I'm as funny as Martin Short, but they knew I was going to show up Catherine O'Hara and Eugene Levy. <laughs> we couldn't have that all right so i have all brought you here together today because you guys are the biggest Phineas and Ferb fans i know of course um and we're here today to talk about actually let me let me take a step back so the whole genesis of this podcast the idea of this podcast after my actor age video did really well i thought hey i should probably get into the podcasting game because this stuff actually does really well in the algorithm go figure uh I mean, and Jonathan, of course, you've had much success with all of that. So I figured I'd throw my, my, my one podcast that I did for Milo 
died after seven episodes. So I'm not sure how I would define success, but <laughs> well, no, no, I'm talking about your YouTube channel primarily. Oh, oh yes, yes. Long form, yeah, long form interviews do really well with the algorithm. So I'm gonna, so I'm, so I'm gonna start making other videos about um, animation stuff in general. I know I want to do a video about like Star Trek Lower Decks, for example, soon. Um, but the other thing I wanted to do was launch a podcast because I figured why not? It would be fun. Um, and at first I was thinking I could do a podcast where I went and interviewed every single episode of Phineas and Ferb. Then I realized that I would be stuck on season one for like forever. And I did not really want to do that. <laughs> Season one is the worst season. Everybody knows it. I mean, there's some great episodes in season one, and we'll talk a little more about that later. But I didn't want to just be reviewing every single episode of season one, especially because so much of season one is very much kind of the, the proto version of the show, I, if that makes any sense, because that was mm -hmm. really before a lot of the running gags were set in stone and they really started having fun with it. I mean, they really started having fun with the, the formula in episodes like Hail Dufania and then there was Phineas and Ferb Get Busted where they really started going just, we're going to do anything in this show. Um, but like I said, I didn't want to be stuck. Season one is where they were before. finding their footing. Exactly. Yeah, Phineas and Ferb Get Busted came way too early. That was, that I was agree. Way I, I, agree. That I think that should have been a way later idea. Like, I think that's an idea that's like, okay, I, I guess part of it is they didn't know when they were going to do what. Uh, like if they were going to even have a second season at first. I, I think if they had known that eventually they'd be doing hour-long specials, they probably would have saved that premise for one of them. But uh, yes. yeah. And probably had As it more is. characters be involved. Honestly, what's always bugged me about Phineas and Ferb Get Busted is that and I know it's supposed to be Candace's dream, but it's like, where are any of their other friends besides um, Belgeet? Like, at that point, Buford wasn't really Netflix. main cast, though, right? He's, he was he was still going through his kind of transformation arc that he gets, where he starts out as there as the bully, and then he kind of slowly becomes a part of the friend group. I'm about yeah. to pull, pull a real obscure character out of the hat. At that point, Buford wasn't as much of a main character, and he was almost as reoccurring as Django was. Yeah. You guys remember Django? Yes, Django <laughs> of course. But the other thing, and we're, we're going to talk more about Phineas and Ferb Get Busted in a future episode of the podcast, but the, the other thing that, with that one, just really quick, is I find it really weird that they, they bring up Isabella's catchphrase, but Isabella is nowhere to be seen. It's like, is, is she doing anything? Does it matter? How does she feel about them getting dragged away? I don't know. Uh, There's just a lot to pack into that episode. But, yeah, you know, like if they had done that as an hour long, that definitely would have been part of it, I think. Um, but anyways, we're actually here to go back a little bit, and I want to talk about Roller Coaster, the very first episode, and also the original pitch and how kind of things evolved from there, and also, of course, when they got to go back and try it again with Roller Coaster, the musical, kind of how that evolved and just kind of that evolution. So start, starting with, because um, I actually just watched um, the original pitch like a few, not even an hour ago. And there's kind of an intro that Dan does where he's talking about the how the show came to be. Although he doesn't really go full into detail on how they have been trying to pitch the show for years and it had gotten turned down at every possible place. And then finally it ended up getting greenlit at Disney. Yeah, I, I know that they were pitching it 
a lot of different places and uh disney was uh at first pretty reticent to take it and they were really trying to rebrand it into more of a disney show quote unquote right not realizing that it would soon redefine what a disney show means right well i know disney they had they had kind of taken the pitch and kind of shelved it away the first time they pitched it and then they actually gave Dan the call afterwards saying, hey, we kind of drug this up, you know, from, you know, the pits of whenever you pitched it. And we want to bring it back because we're looking for a boys show, which I think was really interesting because if you look at Disney Channel at the time, what their programming was, you could you could definitely see why, you know, they had more shows that were successful with like kind of a female target audience. Um, but you can also kind of see that they were trying, they were trying really hard to find a good show for everyone because like lilo and stitch like who's you know who's the target demographic for that you kind of have lilo for the girls relate to and then stitch and the aliens brings in the boys and you kind of get both audiences kim possible it's kind of like the same thing and the same thing with uh well no lesser emperor's new school wasn't really in that same vein but that was that was short like a whole other that's a whole other thing <laughs> i'll bring mike on to talk about emperor's new groove at some point um yes new school i mean he has his own podcast the emperor's new podcast where he talks about emperor's new groove and the oh my but you track the history of disney television animation in general and it was basically you know invented by michael eisner because he saw how lucrative it could be and when he was turning disney from a struggling family company where all the family members were dead to an international telecommunications giant he uh started with gummy bears and new adventures of winnie the pooh and then went on to just at first it was just a bunch of tv shows that were spin-offs of the mickey mouse universe but without mickey mouse like ducktales and goof troop and uh and also i guess tailspin which was not mickey mouse but you know spin-offs of existing disney properties can I talk about Tailspin for a second? And specifically, can I talk about Jungle Cubs? <laughs> oh, yeah. God, I forgot about Jungle Cubs. Oh, my gosh, because that is one of my favorite, like, little tidbits of the Disney uh, television animation canon. Because a lot of people are familiar with Tailspin. A lot of us grew up with Tailspin, um, whether while they were new or in syndication. But Jungle Cubs was something I didn't discover until I was, like, well into high school. And I can't remember if it was airing at like a really obscure time on the Playhouse Disney channel or if I had found it on YouTube because it was also at the time that I was for going through my first Disney Ducks phase where I was getting into the comics and getting into the history of Disney television animation. And I just find it interesting that nobody talks about Jungle Cubs Jungle Cubs uh, in the U.S. was one of the later uh, additions to the Disney One Saturday Morning lineup on ABC. And it was, so this was like well after Recess and Pepper Ann and all those were over. And it might have been like, this was, this was in like the Weekenders Teacher's Pet era that they had Jungle Cubs, which was such a weird relic of like older Disney animation philosophies (laughs) but also like trying to be a Muppet Babies for the Jungle Book. Well, I thought it's interesting about the pitch is it's like, I remember when Muppet Babies happened, there was a babyfying everything thing that happened in the 80s. Everybody was Mm -hmm. kids. 
And then in the early 2000s, they did a Looney Tunes Babies that was really popular yes. for a long time. So my theory is Jungle Cubs walked so that Looney Tunes Babies could run. <laughs> now, now we're stuck with Total Drama Rampa. That's that's where we're at. I've yeah, seen exactly two episodes of Total Drama Rama, and I don't hate it. <laughs> I haven't. I haven't seen it. I just heard bad things. I just. I am obsessed with the fact that. Total Drama AU, where they're all kids and Jude from 16 is there, is an actual thing that's airing on television. Like when I was watching Total Drama in 2007 before it ever got picked up by a US channel, like I couldn't have dreamed this. (laughs) (laughs) But back to Phineas and Ferb. (laughs) So eventually Uh, television got to, eventually Disney television just started throwing more ideas at the wall. And it, it was really like one Saturday morning, like, around the time they acquired uh, Doug from Nickelodeon, that they started doing more of these like cartoons about quote unquote, ordinary kids on adventures. So I think you can draw a line from Doug leaving Nickelodeon down to Phineas and Ferb getting greenlit. And of course some other shows along that line, there's like the Weekenders and Recess and... Even Kim Possible kind of fits in that same box. I'm your basic average girl. And I'm here to yep. save the world. Can't stop me because I'm Kim Possible. Uh, my sister and I actually watched an episode of Kim Possible for the video we did for, well, what was supposed to be a video, but ended up being a surprise early episode of this podcast. Because uh, I was like, I'm not going to be able to get a video out by Halloween. I'm just going to have a sit down and record the audio and I'll edit it slightly and put it out. Um, but we watched an episode of Kim Possible and it still really holds up. And that was probably the most popular show at the time before Phineas and Ferb came around. It was like the only Disney Channel show, I think, where petitions literally saved the final season. Like yes. Disney got so many requests. Yeah, that's right. I remember for, that. For a season four that they actually made it, which, you know, hashtag renew MML, Milo Murphy's Law season three. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe we could get that, hopefully. Honestly, I think the main thing they'd listen to us on is just views on Disney Plus. So definitely people need yeah. to watch them on Disney Plus. It was a different time uh, when you could actually bombard them with letters and and they'd listen. So if you actually watch, because they released the the pitch reel on uh, a D, an early DVD release of the show. Back I when Disney was, put out uh, the occasional DVD of TV shows. Right. I believe it was the, I forget what the, what the name of it was. I think it was the- I know that the, the cover art of the DVD has them writing um, a surfboard on a wave right, right, right. because I had the DVD and I watched it but I do not know what the name of the DVD was but I, I can tell you somewhere. that the one good scare ought to do you some good episode is on it because yes, at the time that. that episode had not aired in Canada yet that episode oh. hadn't aired in the US when it was on that DVD I think I don't know when things aired in the US they did like a, a February event like yeah, in the so first year that. it was released where they just aired like a new episode every day and just dumped it so that they would you know have enough for syndication which is kind of what they they still do that with like the first season of Amphibia aired that way or they just dumped the whole thing in a month just so they could rerun it I yeah think and I know uh, a whole I, I think there's a whole podcast episode you could fill just with the discussion of the baffling ways Disney Channel schedules their episode releases. Oh, for <laughs> sure, for sure. I'm not going to yeah, go on I another know. tangent about Beckles, but know that I could. <laughs> <laughs> 
I know Matt, Matt Braley, the creator of Amphibia, really hated how they aired the first season of Amphibia because it's like all these people work really hard on the show and they kind of rely on people actually like seeing it to promote their work so they can get other work as part of it. And also it, it felt like way less time had passed in the real world than had actually passed in the show, which is normally not a thing that happens. If you look at the reverse of Amphibia, which is Gravity Falls, where it was like, it hardly ever aired. And when an episode did air, it was a whole event. And Phineas and Ferb was kind of both in different times in its life. There were times when they would air an episode like, uh, like, like every week. And there were other times where there was like nothing for months. It was very strange. Gotta love that season four release schedule though. Oh my God. <laughs> Gotta love the Russia airings and you know the the screen cap leaks and of I'm so course. glad I wasn't there for all of that. <laughs> yeah, that was that was a lot of fun. <laughs> that was yeah. Um, but anyways, back to back to roller coaster. So watching the original pitch and then watching the the original episode, most of the stuff from the original episode is still there. There's just, a, from the original pitch to the original episode, there's just a few things that are missing. And it's kind of stuff that's like, okay, you can kind of tell that they cut it for a reason. But the other thing I wanted to talk about was kind of how the characterizations change a little bit, and specifically with Phineas. Yes. Dan vehemently denied that his character did not change, but <laughs> <laughs> he's not right. Yeah. Phineas went from being kind of this annoying little brother to an actually like really just generally kind caring character which i think really benefited the show and i think we talked about this in our three hour long video chat about candace against the universe but it's kind of it's kind of interesting to see just how stuff like that evolved and how they're like okay no we're not gonna do this because like every other show has done this yeah but but that annoying sibling dynamic was like common for saturday morning cartoons it, it, it was it was a staple of the genre, so right. I can see why it would have been easy for them to sort of fall into those dynamics when they're trying to come up with the show to pitch, and then when right. they actually have a show to run, then they can be like, okay, but now we want to make the characters the way we want to make them. Yeah. Right. Right, right. I mean, but even, uh, even when he's talking to Isabella in the pitch, he's kind of, instead of... Uh, because the one thing I really I really noticed is that he blows Candace off kind of with just the with the homework comment uh, where he's like, "Fine, you wait till the last minute." Then he's like, he's very rude and dismissive to her. He he sounds much more genuine even in the pilot where he's like, "No, we're doing homework," like, and it's actually like, "No, that's here. homework assignment," which is the essay that they're going to write about what what they did that the during the summer. In the pitch, it definitely read more as an excuse and like a almost a way to throw candace off the trail whereas right. in the pilot he's just like yeah we're doing homework you wait till the last right. minute and right. he's and still I, not and quite phineas but it's also like it doesn't seem as mean it's not like the the, the, the pitch version just seemed really really like had had really negative undertones yeah I, I know Dan has said elsewhere, like some, uh, Dan has been asked multiple times about like, wait, why did Phineas lie to Candace there? And Dan's excuse is like, no, no, he wasn't lying. He was really working on homework because he said, when we get back to school, they'll ask us what we did this summer. And it's like, 
okay, a nice attempt at a retcon, Dan. But <laughs> they uh, have they have never been great with continuity ever since yeah. Candace Dairy, allergic to dairy, and she grilled cheese is her favorite sandwich. I mean, the thing is, yeah. they okay. get they get so much better at continuity, but only when it's funnier to adhere to continuity than to ignore it. Exactly, like stuff right. like Buford's right. grandma's house smelling like ant pheromones. Like, why, why, yeah. why are you <laughs> the most important? Um. But the other, the other thing with that is when he talks to Isabella, the way he talks to Isabella in the original pitch is is just as um, just as rude and dismissive as when he's talking to Candace. It's like, why are you talking to her like that? She's your friend. What the heck? If Phineas actually talked to Isabella like that, she would not have a crush on him, and that's on God. <laughs> yeah, honestly. Yeah. I, I, I think the most charitable reading, and again, this is just like retconning to try to make it make sense with the characterization. Like the most charitable reading is he's just so focused on his work in that moment that he that he doesn't have time to pay attention. Like he doesn't have the mental energy to also pay attention to friends. But that's not how we ever see him again. And and again, the only charitable reading is because we usually don't see him at this point in the process. Like from here on out, we basically see when the idea is formed and then when it's already built. Yeah, every, everything else is montage or 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 uh, or a wipe in the case of the movie. Um, and, uh, Flip wipe. I'm trying to think if there's a specific episode that, like centers around the building process. I distinctly remember an episode that had something to do with blueprints because I can see that was oh. Phineas and Ferb interrupted. That was yeah. when they oh were yeah, yeah. boring Ray and they're all trying to figure out how to make them because mom's like i'm gonna spend the day with you candace and then <laughs> she's like all right i'm sitting here and they're just like watching well, grass grow and to a certain extent hildy finney was also like that because they did the whole switch the plots idea where phineas is basically playing the role of doofenshmirtz and doofenshmirtz is playing the role of phineas and firm and that one i i love that one that's a really great early season one episode bless you perry the platypus and if it was not for them getting blueprints in that episode, we would not have the most problematic cannon ship. Yes. You know, D Dan recently in a TikTok comment, somebody asked, like, you know, why why are they dating when there's such an age gap? And Dan replied, what? It's That's pretty normal. When I was 19, I dated a 27-year-old. Okay. <laughs> well, okay. I remember... <laughs> Because it came I'm, out of real life. Okay, yep. Now, now I, I understand. I was a well, very young. I was into it when I was fourteen. I thought it was a great idea, but I was definitely also in the camp of I like the idea that Ferb has a crush on her, and then years later, when they're both in their twenty or thirties, them meeting again. Yeah. And I kind of liked that idea, and I kind of ran with the ship on that idea, and then they did necessary roughness, and then they just kept meeting and then after age happened and i'm like they knew each other this whole time because they were all friends uh, the necessary roughness is such a good episode it is though i yeah. really love that. <laughs> that, a very good episode. that may be the episode i quote the most in just regular everyday life ever since i installed the go awayinator driving has become fun again <laughs> uh let's see i think we were talking about phineas being mean to his friends yeah, so Phineas I is think kind that's of a jerk in the original pitch. 
Um, and then so it's it's kind of it's kind of jarring to watch. You go from the original pitch to roller coaster to roller coaster the musical, and it's such a vast difference between the two. Phineas's personality changed as much as his voice did. <laughs> yep. Uh, that is that is the one thing about the early episodes that I find difficult. And it was interesting because originally I had a difficult time watching the newer episodes when they aired. Right. At first I had a really difficult time adjusting to Phineas's new voice as like, you know, Vincent Martella had gone through puberty at this point. And now watching the older ones, I'm like, that's not Vincent Martella making a funny voice. That's a child. Yeah. That's a child piece? saying these lines. <laughs> It well, feels like like voice didn't change at all. No, his voice changed. He, did. he got a bit he deeper. Did, really. it, but it it's, if it very, talks so much less, you don't really notice as much. It's like it's squeakier, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Meanwhile, on oh. recess, they just keep they just kept recasting TJ anytime his voice started to change. So uh, <laughs> they did the same thing on Hey Arnold, though. So yeah. I mean, eventually they well, did the same thing for did, uh, In a lot of the later episodes of Phineas and Ferb is actually uh, digitally pitched up. Allison's, even if it sounds like a little different, I'm like, I think this sounds better because it's, she can be more expressive with that. And it does definitely feel more naturalistic, but that doesn't mean I won't still love Isabella's birthday song because that oh, is of one course. of the most underrated songs from the whole show. Oh yeah, that's a good one. So, of course, um, the biggest thing that the, the pilot does is it establishes the formula of the show and how everything is interconnected. And it's kind of funny because if you're just watching the title sequence, you don't know that there is a whole third element to the show, which is, of course, Harry's whole subplot with Doofenshmirtz. And so, someone watching the show for that first time, that might be, you know, so that, that might be such a left field thing to see. It's like, oh, wait, this is a thing, too? Okay, sure. I remember the first time my mom watched the show, it was the Christmas special. And she knew a lot of the songs because we would blast the um, that season one album that came out in the car all the time. But she was really unfamiliar with what the show was about. And about a half hour into this 45 minute special, she kind of looks at me and she goes, this is a lot for a kid to try to follow. <laughs> <laughs> it is kind of like, if you think of the pilot pitch, not as a pilot episode for a series, but just as a standalone animated short, it is like the fact that suddenly there's this subplot involving a secret agent and a mad scientist is very <laughs> like, like it, it plays as a very Looney Tunes, like just out of left field running gag coming out of nowhere. And then it gets codified as just a, regular canonical element of this particular universe. That's kind of the beauty of the formulaic uh, episodes is that even like younger children watching the show, like I am significantly older than my youngest sibling. And when she was growing up watching it, she was a lot younger. And because, you know, it's the same thing every time, when they would break formula, when they would do things like Phineas and Ferb get busted, she was able to follow it and understand it. And when they would do the more, uh, like the really bigger episodes that they did a couple seasons later, it's a lot easier for someone who may not even be following the show, but have seen a couple episodes to kind of understand where they're going and mm -hmm. 
not feel as confused when all of a sudden, you know, in the second dimension movie, when Phineas and Ferb meet Doofenshmirtz, I'm like, okay, but why can't they know that the platypus is a secret agent? And like, how did they not figure this out already? It's like, you've been watching. It's like, no, 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 no. Here's why. The reason for this. I'm, I'm actually reminded of, I'm pretty sure it was Damon Lindelof was hosting uh, one of the Comic-Con panels. And he was talking oh, about Oh, yes, I remember this. His son had discovered Phineas and Ferb after being bored as hell watching Caillou. <laughs> and he's like absolutely energized talking about the show because there's so much going on. And Dan and Swampy have always said this. Kids are way smarter than you give them credit for. You throw things at them. They may, they may get it. They, they may not. But there's another joke coming for them in 30 seconds. I mean, to, to be fair, as an adult, I'm sure... Keeve now gets to appreciate the Caillou memes because he watched the show. So, you know, there's, there's some value to it. Oh, Caillou. Uh, Caillou. <laughs> I'm um, sure you've heard the epic they... rap remix of the theme song. <laughs> I never thought. <laughs> My interest is peaked. <laughs> you never heard the Caillou rap remix of the, the theme trap, song? The rap remix. I cannot oh. say I have. Um, the the thing that mostly stayed intact, well, the things that mostly stayed intact from the original pitch were, of course, Candace's plot, which pretty much plays out exactly as it does in the the final pilot, and then in the musical, it's just embellished with a song, and the the addition of the screaming at cheese joke, which I think was great. <laughs> I think it's pretty clever how much animation they were able to reuse for that episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. although. The only thing that bugs me with that is that the, the roller coaster keeps constantly jump cutting riders. Yes. Yeah, that's one of those just cartoon continuity things you just accept. Yeah. It's like, uh. This was expensive think, animation. Make it alone. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. Well, in parts of the roller coaster, CG too, at a few points in that episode. So you gotta manage that. Yeah. The other thing, the other thing is that the roller coaster itself looks really, really sketchy compared to a lot of the stuff that they build later, where it's a lot more put together. Well, that's another element of just. Yeah, yeah, it's it's another element of the early concept of the show, where it's like at first it's like here, this needs to almost believably look like some kids put it together, like obviously very heightened reality, but. It, it needs to have kind of a homemade look to it. And almost immediately they were like, okay, the audience just accepts that Phineas and Ferb can do anything. So it doesn't need to look homemade anymore. Right. right. Except for the one time when it kind of does fall apart and is sketchy, which is in Phineas and Ferb got busted. It's like, oh, one bull was holding all of this together. Okay. The flying car of the future today is leaning a little bit to the left. <laughs> Um, I part of me feels like one of the reasons they did roller coaster the musical was just to sort of give the pilot concept its full due as a quote proper Phineas and Ferb episode. Yeah, definitely. Because there's a lot of things that are actually absent from the pilot that have that it since became stable. Specifically, of course, the songs, which is kind of the whole thing, is we didn't do any songs for roller coaster and we should we should go back and fix that and do it again as a musical and of course they do the whole musical number at the beginning which is just a tribute to different musicals because 
we're going to do a musical episode, we might as well call back to all sorts of iconic mm-hmm. musicals, including a version of Cap that doesn't make you want to claw your eyes out. Yeah, I think I think if you look at it, Roller Coaster of the Musical really is the superior episode just all the way around. Um, just from everything. And, and, you know, with the context of all the times it's been revisited, you know, the original, obviously, and then the time travel, it kind of puts a definitive capper on the roller coaster story, so to speak. And at the same time, you know, makes fun of the fact that, you know, the pilot didn't have all these things. Like, this time it's my giant magnetism magnifinator, because I didn't have the innator suffix last time. So that's clearly why it didn't work. And um, you've heard this line about it's not going to be one of your random extras. Yeah, it's not yeah. going to anybody's going to ride for food at the posters. What do you mean? That was great. Um, and like, yeah, there's, it, I mean, it reuses some gags, but it, it puts in enough work with the new ones that it, it makes it its own episode. And, and the other running gags that weren't introduced yet, like the farmer and his wife. Right. The, uh... What do you think? A battery card was just going to fall out of the sky? Hey, what did you think? A million dollars? Like, what did you think? A million dollars was just going to fall out of the sky. That doesn't work that way. Doesn't that way. <laughs> doesn't that work. They actually, they, they had a song in that episode that was cut. Have you guys heard that? No. Look at all those tabs. If I say something out loud, it'll fall from a cloud. But it's never what I want. I'm a sad debutante. I've never said this before. But the thing that I adore has been just out of reach. So to the sky I beseech. For once in my life, I'd like something nice. I'm gonna make a stand. I'll cross the burning sands. I'll swim the tallest sea. I'll climb the leafiest tree. I'll stand above the clouds. I'll finally say it out loud. I want a puppy. That's great. Yeah. That was a great punchline. Oh my gosh. That's awesome. I was disappointed they never showed up on Milo, but I was glad they showed up in Candace Against the Universe. I don't know know why they never showed up on Milo. It would have made just as much sense as anything for them to show up on Milo. The the weird thing about Milo is that the specific gags they choose to pull from Phineas and Ferber just so specific like the substitute teachers convention was just like <laughs> that is like that such a specific gag to bring back it's really just that like i feel like the farmer has even more positive energy ions than phineas and ferb have because everything <laughs> always goes his way without the planning that phineas and ferb put into it exactly everything goes his way everything goes right for him he, he has the Phineas extreme Ferb, anti-Murphy's Law. Phineas and Ferb are our only hope. No, there is another. <laughs> <laughs> we already had one Star Wars crossover. We need a new season of Milo so we can get the one we deserve. Yeah, no, we didn't oh deserve God. the Phineas and Ferb one. The Phineas and Ferb one is like chef's kiss god tier so good. So good. It's so well, we good. need the, the, we need I, the Doofenshmirtz Strikes Back. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. I definitely want to do a whole episode talking about the Star Wars crossover. Uh, the other thing I want to talk about that's coming out soon is 
the the Lego Star Wars holiday special that's going to be on Disney Plus on Life Day. It looks that good. Looks, that it looks, looks fun. Amazing. I am so excited to see that. <laughs> yes, got a lot of time travel stories. And I like that it's happening in a non-canon special. It's just like, we're just going to do this and throw everything at it. Are they bringing back most of the original voice actors or no? I'm assuming they probably I have no idea. Adam Driver and paycheck. <laughs> I'm really doubting John Boyega wanted to come back. <laughs> probably. I wouldn't blame him. I, would I mean, Billy D. Williams already came back to play Lego Lando once, so maybe he'll do it again. Yeah, I can see that. If I may quote another Disney Plus series, do what you want. You're Billy D. Williams. <laughs> <laughs> just from Earth to Ned when Billy D. Williams got interviewed. Earth to Ned's a fun show. Uh, so what? one interesting thing that changed, and I'm not entirely sure why, but I'm grateful for it, is the change from Dr. Metalschmerz to Dr. Doofenshmirtz. It's because if his name was Metalschmerz, they would have to pay royalties to Middleditch and Schwartz because they just squished it into one. <laughs> <word>. uh, okay. <laughs> well, they yeah. got... They, they got Middle Ditch and Candace against the universe, so. Thank <laughs> you for saving all people. In this verse. <laughs> His role in Candace is so funny. I, it, it is one of those ones where it's like, Metal Schmertz was a perfectly fine comedy villain name, um, but then Doof and Schmertz, they could shorten to Doof, and it's like, were they going to shorten it to Med? Like, yeah. No, what, what was it? Wasn't Metal Schmerz like inappropriate in some way, which was the ultimate reason it was cut? Oh, that's that sounds right. Like in some, it translated to something not kid friendly or something. Yeah, probably about right. That's usually how it is with these things. Which is funny. Or it's they like, try to avoid dirty humor and Phineas and Ferb as much as possible. So for them to make that like a crux of it, I think just shows where they were in the creative process in 1993. They, it's always yeah. it's always the, either this joke is secretly inappropriate or this name is already a copyrighted character that nobody's ever heard of but they might sue us anyway that's why they changed well that was one of the reasons why they changed it from mikey murphy the other was because mm -hmm. it was too close oh, to mickey and this disney some, said some blogger is named mikey murphy i guess never heard of them but then somehow the the whole thing with the Bettys slipped under the radar. Oh, they're ready for the Bettys. <laughs> but then, but then that song was called back to in a later episode, probably before any of the the legal junk. Uh, where that, as a result, that episode like has rarely aired. Yeah, as far as episodes that rarely air, I was looking to see during the big marathon they did leading up to Candace Against the Universe if they're going to air the second Cliptastic Countdown, and they did. And it's still as garbage as it was the day it aired. That, that is a very bad flash animation, just piece of trash. What were they thinking? I don't. I don't know how familiar you guys are with like YouTube, uh, like kind of commentary channels. But like, have you guys heard of LS Mark before? Like he he does kind of like animation reviews. He hated. He had a reviewer. He hated Candace Against the Universe, and mm -hmm. it was really controversial when it came out because it was the first like big youtuber to come out and review the movie and so he got really hated on for it and so i decided to reach out to him and now work on a collab about this episode the, the second cliptastic countdown and how awful it is <laughs> like channel the negative energy towards something that deserves it yes 
there's a part of me that every time I because that the second Cleptastic countdown is bad on almost every layer foundationally but the one thing that sticks out to me still is that I feel like they originally had it so that summer belongs to you was supposed to be number one Mm. And I don't know why I have this inclination that they flipped it to be Everything's Better with Perry. They are equally good songs, but every fiber in my being is telling me that they changed it, likely because of Kelly Osbourne and her wanting to talk about Perry the Platypus. Probably. I, mean, I, don't, I don't know why, and I don't know why it bothers me, but I'm just like, you know, I think belongs to you deserve this clout. I think it's interesting. You know, they're usually going for a specific musical style with those songs. And so those two... The Summer Belongs to You one is very similar to that one song from Hairspray. Yeah. Um, right, of I liked it. <laughs> yeah, well, no, no, it's amazing. It's amazing. And Everything's Better with Perry is very similar to, you know, like a Jackson 5, kind of like I Want You Back or kind of like very in the same vibe. But like with Us Against the Universe, and I say this is my favorite from Candace Against the Universe, just because I don't think it sounds like anything else that I've ever heard specifically in a genre. Maybe I'm just not musically cultured, but like... Except I don't know. Just like a big finale song in a Broadway show where it's like everyone is singing all at once and it's just this huge spectacle. That's true. It's great. But, but usually with a Broadway finale, it combines previous medleys from the show. That's usually the the end is kind of a culmination of the musical. Right. It's usually theme. like a big surprise. It's not a big original song where everyone is singing right. all together. I think that's what makes the vibe it. I kind of got from that song was less the finale of a Broadway show, or, but the finale of live action Disney Channel musicals. But then, of course, done in a Phineas and Ferb style with, you know, they, one of the things I really love about Phineas and Ferb is like, unless it's, there's a very specific vibe they're going for, a lot of the music features instrumentation that you don't normally hear on Disney Channel. Like, there's a lot of brass and woodwinds in them. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that song slaps. It is the second most listened to song from that album on my Spotify behind only Chop Away at My Heart. Yes. <laughs> and I haven't even watched Milo Murphy's Law. <laughs> I just think that song slaps. That song, that song is fantastic. That was really that, that was a song that was meant to be just a really bad boy band song and they took it and changed the lyrics. It was one of Dan's friends who wrote it for a college assignment. Right, um, right. And he was like, hey, can I just take this and rewrite the lyrics? And he did in like 10 minutes. And that was that was chop, chop, chop. It was originally jump, jump, jump. <laughs> jump, 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 jump right into your arms. Or something, something along those lines was the... Something like that where it was like very much supposed to be like a One Direction song. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. It's... It reads as a One Direction song. Again, as someone who has not watched Milo Murphy's Law, it it reads as a One Direction song, and it's so good. The, the featurette, the featurette on the uh, on the very Perry Christmas DVD that shows the songwriting process is one of my favorite DVD bonus features of all time. Stacking steel, laying bricks, pounding nails, and moving up quick. Yeah, it, it's it, it's such a good window into like how much fun these shows clearly were to make, and oh yeah, but but also just how much raw songwriting talent they all have, and just how knowledgeable they are of musical styles, and yeah, it's 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 impressive, and which is why going back to roller coaster, which is supposed to be the topic of this, even though we're talking about just about everything else, 
is that um, sorry roller coasters is not an interesting episode <laughs> yeah well, i guess it, it's interesting insofar as what it's set up for the universe but right that's really what i was going for with this here's here's uh, here's a fun question what would you say outside of roller coaster is the most basic standard episode of phineas and ferb doesn't try and put a twist on anything includes Candace all the loses her head Candace loses her head. Yeah, well, that's a road trip, so they're not really inventing something at home. It's true. That's true. And Doof I just know that's the one that it gets paired with when they air Doof, it. So I'm like, Doof. it's the most basic episode. Yeah, yeah Doof, but Doof doesn't, he doesn't have his building in that one either, so I feel like that also disqualifies. Because I was going to bring up the Lawn Gnome Beach Party of Terror, but that also, like, Doof is in this weird underground thing in that one. It's... And, yeah, uh, and also... And also, Candace is on board with the with the big idea for the day. By the end of that right. one, I, I think not. My problem is probably the like Candace isn't even really mm. trying to bust them throughout most of that. But I love not my problem so much. Well, not my problem was a way later episode. That was like that was season four, I believe. Yeah, well, I mean, it's pretty basic. Doof plans to take over all the buffets with his eat it all and ater. Landon says disco miniature golfing queen, which but even think, yeah, Doof, but Doof has his suburb house, house in that one. Doof Chmer's house in the suburbs. Yeah. But, but even that has uh Candace sick in bed. So like the twist on the formula is she has to send an emissary to do it. So I'm sure there is a bunch of episodes that (laughs) take place in the backyard with Doofenshmirtz in his building that are very basic and are good episodes and are fun, but I cannot think of any of them. (laughs) I, I feel like every single episode after the pilot puts some sort of twist on the formula, even if it was just a slight a slight recontextualization like maybe if if we hadn't been following paul around maybe delivery of destiny would have been a normal one but instead we're focusing on other characters the fantastic fabulous car wash i was actually going to suggest that one that seems Um, pretty basic but candace is avoiding busting them because of jeremy but that's not a huge twist on the form no that that's pretty reoccurring swinder um drip de soleil Swinter, where you think Doofenshmirtz has the meltinator and you think that's how it's going to happen, but it ends up just pulling out the energy <laughs> so the fans turn off. And the yeah, even then, that's a subversion. It's not that the magnet the magnet thing took the roller coaster away. It's that, it's that you know, it was, oh, it's this was a Rube Goldberg reaction that actually turned off the the, the fans that cooled the, the snow, which that, that honestly, kind of that right there and some of the other things that happened where it's like, you think Doofsonator is going to take their invention away, but then it's a, that's a misdirect and it ends up doing something else that causes their invention to go away. That's kind of a, a proto-Milo Murphy's Law right there where it's like, this is a chain reaction that happens. Yeah. Also worth noting about Swinter, and I could be wrong, but I think that is the first time the A and B plots cross paths because it has Candace and Vanessa... Um, on the ski lift together for like 30 seconds. Oh, yeah. That's right. Journey to the center of Candace, but I don't remember what Duke's plot in that one was. That's such a non-memorable episode. I literally <laughs> only remember it because like, I, I know I said I was a young Furbessa shipper, but like really from day one and still to this day, I was like, I'm obsessed with Candace and Jeremy as a concept. 
So it's like, that was one of my favorite episodes of the original ones because we actually got to see Jeremy do things on a very basic level, not nearly as great as we would eventually get in the movie, which was just... Rob, when Rob, when I was talking to Rob, he was like, Jeremy was always the hardest character to write because he just has no personality trait. There's not a single flaw to him. So, like, what do you even do with his character? Like, your best and basically. <laughs> That's one of the things I, I like about the Jeremy character, though, is he is the inverse of the typical flatly written female love interest yeah. who only serves the male lead. Which is, but he's. Yeah. <laughs> it's the male version of that. I like that. Like any any sitcom where it's like, okay, this dude's wife is way out of his league. What's going on? Like, why is she settling for him? And this is, okay, this this old boyfriend, he's the most patient man in the universe. Yeah. That's true. He really is. Jeremy is very, very, very patient with all of Candace's antics and there's also the the aspect of this is kind of going back to roller coaster, but like the aspect where they like included live action footage, which was something the show kind of phased out. Oh yeah, in the later That's seasons, right. which was just that was kind of a weird. That that felt like a very Nickelodeon thing to do, yes. like yeah. to randomly cut in different like live action backdrops and completely different animation styles, like that felt like a relic of when they weren't quite sure what network they would be on yeah, yeah. I think so too. and then the whole we should have charged more which again <laughs> what phineas like uh, you get into later seasons like when they build the ant farm and it's like oh that was the scale model for the investors it's like okay so that's how they're that's how they're financing this it's not it's not <laughs> just through uh kids paying them their allowance ripping them off but <laughs> I mean, they have later instances like uh, Out of Tune where they explicitly confirm that Phineas isn't charging the audience anything. But, and then you but, get you get like uh, uh, Duber getting the band back together. Can you perform Miracles, boys? What's your budget? <laughs> <laughs> we, just, we just assume people love Phineas and Ferb so much they, they constantly donate. Like, I feel like there's one episode where Candace, she goes outside and people are just waiting in the backyard and she's like, why are you here? It's like, we don't know. We're just kind of waiting for Phineas and Ferb to do something. Get out of my backyard. That's a, I, I mean, they've talked, they've talked about how Ferris Bueller's day off was kind of an influence and that's very, you know. Reminiscent um, of that. Yeah. Yeah. Where, where she comes home and sees save Ferris written on the city water tower and everything. <laughs> like One man struggled to take it easy. One of the best movie taglines ever. And and I think that's again part of it with Phineas in the pilot. He's much more of a little Ferris Bueller than he is the Phineas we grow to love. Yeah, I can see that. I also think that talking about just pilots in general, when they did Milo Murphy's Law, it was such a stronger plan for where the series was going to go, especially with the pilot episode. Where like mm. Milo as a character is much more established and fleshed out. I feel like than Phineas. Like Milo's first season is so strong from beginning to end in a way that Phineas and Ferb's wasn't it, like Milo's had a direction. Phineas's was very meandering and Absolutely. kind of all over the and place, I mean, but in I a good part way. Of that, I think part of that just comes from the fact that Phineas and Ferb didn't really have an overarching story that they had planned. Whereas mm -hmm. Milo, it's like, okay. And with Phineas, it felt like for a while in season one, they're kind of like, okay, we, you know, 
we need to figure out what the show is going to be. Whereas with Milo, it's like, we know what this is going to be. We know who these characters are and we know what their trajectory is. I also think it bears uh, mentioning that I think those are also very symptomatic of what cartoons were popular at the time and what they were doing. Like when Phineas and Ferb came out, like, you know, SpongeBob wasn't doing arcs. Every episode was episodic things like, you know, Fairly Odd Parents, whatever's on Cartoon Network at the time, there wasn't really a lot of animated shows that had anything of an arc other than maybe like a two or three part special. Whereas by the time Milo came out, not only did Phineas and Ferb have a couple of, you know, long running arcs that really kind of changed the game, so many other shows and animation studios and even within Disney when they made Gravity Falls, like they had the, the landscape of what animation was looking like in terms of storytelling had changed so much between Phineas's starting point and Milo's starting point. I, I think Quentin Reviews brought up in his video about Phineas and Ferb about how when Phineas started, you know, the end goal for shows was syndication and reruns, which could be shown in any order. And when Milo started, the end goal was streaming and binge watching. And, uh, it was just two radically different approaches to television at different times. Um, and as a result, season one of Phineas is a lot of just throwing everything at the wall. And the things that stuck, stuck really well. The yes. songs, the songs all are the only ones that people remember. Right. <clears throat> and going, going back to the songs, it's kind of, it's kind of crazy to think that Dan and Swampy, in the in the the intro to the original pitch, uh, one of the things that Dan mentions in the the voiceover talking about the the show is that he and Swampy had won an Emmy for an episode of Rocco that they worked on that was a musical. So it's like Zanzibar were incredibly talented songwriters, but they hadn't thought of putting a song in the pilot episode, which is interesting. I, I wonder if they just didn't know if a musical would be as easy to sell as a non-musical, just looking at the television landscape at the time. Probably. Disney probably I mean, had something like, would a musical appeal to boys? Probably yeah. not. <laughs> this was pitched before High School Musical, before Glee, before, way before Disney made Frozen, way before people were back on liking musicals, because for a very long time, a musical just seemed like a bad idea and kind of it's it's funny to say it when like we live in the landscape we live in now and we know what goes into making a musical but I remember a time when something being a musical made it feel cheap mm-hmm. yeah especially if you don't put a lot of work into the songs mm-hmm. right well, what's interesting is that you know that was kind of the thought before then that then yeah high school musical was such a phenomenon I, I mean roller coaster literally aired right after high school musical after high school musical 2 as a matter of fact which was the summer vacation one so that was actually pretty brilliant of them to do it like that and, and we said we want to see ashley tisdale on summer vacation twice baby <laughs> yes <laughs> They literally had the whole cast of the movie sitting there and Ashley Tisdale's like, yes, I'm in this show and it's really good. You should watch it. It's, it's kind of funny because Phineas and Verb ended up having two anniversaries because it's August 17th. And then also February 1st was when the show officially started airing when they ran, uh, when they ran Flop Stars. But then there's also the one that everyone forgets about, which is Lawn Dome Beach Party of Terror, which was the other preview episode that I don't even remember when, when that one aired. It aired that in Russia like, two months before the 
high school music. It was like December, I think. Um, I remember Lawnmown Beach Party of Terror. I'm not sure if that is the first episode that aired in Canada, but it was the first one I saw, and it was definitely the one that got rerun the most in the earlier days of the show. That's that's paired with uh, the Fast and the Phineas, right? I believe so. It's such a weird to think that they're pairing the Fast and the Furious back in 2007. And it's still a meme in 2020. It's still going. It, it yeah, who knew that franchise would last? <laughs> Supposedly they're fighting the ending of the... I don't know. I, I feel like they're going to go to friggin' space before they end this franchise. They're not going to go to space as much as Phineas and Vern. Are, are, yeah, are you saying true. that Supercharged is such a disappointment that they're killing their most popular movie franchise? <laughs> it just kill, It drains so much of the hype. I mean, just, you know... Everybody wanted to ride on a party bus. That was the ultimate Fast and Furious experience. Yeah, you know, definitely not a ride where you are going fast. Honestly, if they had built an outdoor roller coaster like West Coast Racers, that would have been a better fit. Just just pour one understand. of the backlot stunt coasters from King's Dominion and which, a, which is basically what West Coast Racers is just dual track like Twisted Colossus. Well, it's like, okay, I get that they just wanted to reuse the same footage they shot for the the studio tour version of Supercharged, but I don't get why they didn't rekey that footage into different backgrounds and do it in more of like the Spider-Man Transformers ride system. Right, like all those assets could be used differently if you actually wanted to be creative with it, but they weren't, and so yeah. it wasn't. First of all, Fast and Furious Supercharged killed the love of my life and I'm still bitter. Second of all... Um, I actually am, like, one of the few supporters of, uh, Skull Island Reign of Kong, mostly because my best friend opened the ride, and I knew a lot of people on the opening team, so I got to ride it a lot, but at least with Skull Island, they cut and pasted stuff from the tram, but also added new physical sets, and of course, the big monkey at the end, which is my favorite yes. part. Well, they actually, they I didn't mean, copy and paste the, the tram footage, they actually... They re they remastered it like obviously you know they had to change the the tramp yeah. vehicle to a truck but they also changed a little bit of the pacing the spider comes in at a different time and they added a musical score which the California one still doesn't have which is amazing I don't know if you ever like so, it's really still on the musical tracks but they're so good honestly, I actually had really high hopes for Fast and Furious Supercharged just based on a the fact that I really like Kong and B I was like if you're going to kill the Beetlejuice show for this. I hope it at least appeals to someone. Like I, like, I knew I wasn't gonna like it that much because I was like, this is sacred ground. But I was really hoping it was going to be like good. And then I got to ride it during soft and my God, it was just underwhelming. All of the stuff I liked about it was stuff that was left over from disaster. Well, the thing with Kong is Kong is an absolutely gorgeous attraction. Like, it looks incredible. And the, the, the design of everything in the queue and inside the actual ride looks amazing. Uh, whereas Fast and Furious is like, oh, it's just a warehouse. Yeah. And you get to hear Turn Down for what? That was where half the budget went, was to the royalties for that song. Yay! <laughs> you can still get I'm... Beetlejuice at SeaWorld on Journey to Atlantis. They don't play anymore. <laughs> We took yeah. the Beetlejuice music out of Atlantis, and I'm never going to recover. Uh, they took everything that made that ride an interesting train wreck out, and now it's just boring. 
I've been I missed to the, the time it was exactly twice, and both times I wrote Journey to Atlantis. The computer for the little first mermaid that you see was down at one point. It was running like Windows 87 or something. <laughs> I love, I it, when, so I love it when theme park ride computers crash and they use like the oldest version of Windows possible. It's like, how do these graphics run on this computer? Do you remember when Diagonally at one point one of the windows broke and it was shown to be running Windows? <laughs> oh, I do remember that. It is I think Windows for the Windows. It was just iron. I think, I think um, one time I was in an IMAX theater to see something and the projector was showing it was on like win Windows 2000. I'm like, how does this work? This doesn't make any sense. I've definitely been on theaters that was were running on Windows XP. Oh my god. Yeah, it was like Windows XP. It was like, why is it running this old ass system? Uh, it's not broke, don't fix it. I mean, I guess. But it's like, can that support high def? Apparently. Apparently. Um, well, this actually uh, almost connects to a point I was going to make, just in terms of visual presentation. Because <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. I know, I remember uh, years upon years ago, when they did that uh, New York Times panel, uh, one of the things Dan and Swampy talked about was Disney was... Uh, kind of nervous about greenlighting a show that was board-based instead of script-based, which is ironic because all of the classic Disney animation was board-based instead of right. script-based. But uh, the television department wasn't used to knowing how to work with the production flow where it's all storyboards and no typed-up uh, teleplay. Well, because they were still coming off, sort of, but not really. They're still kind of coming off the Disney golden era of like, the 90s and you know like you said as Michael Eisner's really trying to build them into this huge big corporate conglomerate family brand they want to have so much control over what goes in their shows and you know make sure that nothing slips by that could kill their burgeoning reputation which you know they made chicken little so not great <laughs> <laughs> Dan, Dan always talks about there was I'm glad the movie exists for that song <laughs> It, it was there was a they were looking at a chicken little series that was it was the option was disney could greenlight phineas or this chicken little series and dan was like they're gonna do chicken little because it's based off the movie and that <laughs> didn't happen he thought for sure they were gonna go with chicken little and they didn't i wish we lived in a world where we got both <laughs> <laughs> I I, 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 we got both the phineas series may not have gotten the attention it needed when it was on disney channel and I'm just I, I want I just want to see the Chicken Little show. I'm just I, picturing I this, that that this Chicken thing. Little series with like back at the barnyard level animation. <laughs> like that's what I was wondering. First of all, the animation gonna be like some everything or it probably would have been just been 2D. That was kind of how they did it. They just made you make yeah. a 3D movie and you do 2D on TV. Although 3D on TV lately, at least from what I've seen on Disney Junior, it looks like they've really stepped up their game. Yeah, they've got, uh, I mean, the technology's gotten so much better since then. Um, when you look at the early episodes of, like, Sophia the First, it's like, oh, what's happening? Mm, those look, yeah. Uh, the biggest uh, thing with 3D, though, that comes down to is render times and hair textures. Like, yeah. mm -hmm. the like you can, you can make a good 3D cartoon, but everything will be textured like rubber. But if you want to do it right, you have to apply the right textures to everything and render it properly. Right. Which is why you hair see so many characters with hair that's just like a, a clump. 
It's, there's there's just no individually rendered strands. It's just it never moves. Um, yeah. Well, what's great about Which, the Muppet Baby series done in CGI is that they literally look like toys already, so they're really easy to sell. Exactly. Yeah. But there's still no Baby Gonzo plush, and I'm angry about it. Okay. Do you, do any of you have the Behold the Elevator Nader shirt? Because I've wanted that forever, and I know no. Disney didn't make. I don't a lot have of any of those, and I'm mad at myself that I never got them when they existed. Because that, that's just like, I've seen the design. It's my favorite shirt ever, and you can't find it anywhere. I, want I bought one some other shirt that had Dr. Doofenshmirtz on it at Hollywood Studios in like 2010 or 2011. It was like a boy's extra large because I was like 17 or 18 years old at the time. But it wasn't Disney Park specific. You probably could get it at like anywhere that sold licensed Disney merch. Yeah. Yeah. These days you can get more Phineas and Ferb merch at Knott's Berry Farm than you can at Disneyland, so. <laughs> yes. Although they are actually selling merch again at other stores, like I believe Hot Topic has stuff and Box Lunch where I got an, where I got an awesome uh, Phineas and the Ferb Tones shirt. It's really cool. Nice. Rest in peace, the Zoetrope episode. <laughs> the Zoetrope episode? Yeah, you didn't see the boards for that one? No, I, <laughs> I know not. too much. I'll have to show <laughs> it. It's like the whole first third of the episode just totally done with rough voices and everything. Oh, really? Well, that's interesting, but that's not related to what we're... Oh, not at all, but we haven't, we, it's not like we haven't gone off topic before, so... Oh, yeah, sure. Let's get, ba let's get back on the real topic, which I think was Fast and the Furious Supercharged. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we're going to continue, continue our, uh, our discussion of that. Um, the real um, thoughts I have on the uh, pilot in general is, again, a lot of it makes sense as a pilot more than it does as, like, an episode in retrospect right thank you loud motorcycle that's on my window um <laughs> me too a, a a lot of it makes more sense again season one they were throwing a bunch of things at the wall and it's not until season two and three that they start to gather up the gems and really do actual world building based on everything they threw at the wall it's like i always think of the two the two extremes you can have with world building. There's like the Tolkien approach where you plot everything out in advance before you even write a word. And, you know, you invent entire languages before you even realize that like, hey, maybe there's a magic ring involved. Or there's the opposite approach, which is what I call the Homestar Runner approach, where you're just ad-libbing and ad-libbing and improving and just making stuff up and then your fans remember the details and you're like, oh, people are keeping track of this. We'd better keep track of this too. Let's look at the wiki and do our own, you know, right from there. Exactly. Exactly. And th that's, that's what, um, that's what Tony has said whenever he's described Phineas and Ferb and Milo Murphy's Law in the writing process. It, it, it really is the closest that an animated show can get to improv. It's, it's all about yeah. yes and, and building on stuff that, came before and if it doesn't stick just find something else my favorite episode of that is let's take a quiz that one just <laughs> yes that is just that, that's a really fun one that's just a, a a great slice of absurdity where nothing about it makes sense and it it's so it's so fun it's, just... it's like doof's doof's whole thing in that one is he's bought all the 
uh, all the telemarketing stuff. And so it was just every <laughs> every five seconds is a new gag with some product he bought off TV. And with Phineas and Ferb, every second is some sort of new ridiculous game show gag. Which I I was I was looking it up the other day. I did not know that defenestration was the act of throwing somebody out the window. Out a window. Yeah. I always thought that was just nonsense. <laughs> Why do we have a to... word for that? But because it was coming up a lot, apparently. Tony, Tony, <laughs> why not? Tony, why not? Tony backwards judges. Twenty-five points. Why not Kremlog? That sequence is like Monty Python flying circus level timing, and just and oh, just like oh, it's so good. Shrinkinator, and... unplug Shrinkinator. I'll do it tomorrow. That that's a great episode. I also oh, just sorry. remember for for whatever reason for whatever reason the first time I saw that episode, it hit me just right that the phrasing of the title as let's take a quiz just sounded so funny to me. Like just the title of the game show was like this is worded so specifically oddly that I'm giggling just at the name of this fake game show before they even get to the actual <laughs> jokes. I think it's because the you know the idea of a game shows that it's supposed to be fun, but let's take a quiz is just an inherently yeah. <laughs> dreadful statement. If your teacher said, All right, kids, let's take a quiz today. It's not no. so awkward. No. I don't think there's anything else to really add. I mean, I think we've kind of... So Roller Coaster is a great episode. Uh, I think the show peaked with episode one. <laughs> uh, never got better. You know, if you've seen the first episode, you've seen the whole show, which I really think is, you know, the biggest flaw of Phineas and Ferb. <laughs> well, I, think, I mean, I I, the... I, well, I mean, that's what the, the critics of Phineas and Ferb seem to say, is that they... They get so hung up on the fact that they use a formula that they ignore that every other episode plays with the formula. And... Right, it does something different. No, I was going to say the biggest criticism of Phineas and Ferb I think that I've heard is that the writers tend to write the kids not really as kids, but as adults, which I can understand. It's kind of like they're almost written as like adults in kids' bodies sometimes. Um, and the writers are just kind of like using the characters as their mouthpieces for whatever absurd jokes they want to think of, which like... It's a legitimate criticism that I can understand, but at the same time, if you're spending four seasons with any character, they do have to feel like fleshed out enough to be an adult, if that makes right. any sense. And I, I also I also don't think that's in any way a unique trait of this particular cartoon, because yeah. like characters being mouthpieces for absurd jokes is you know, that, that's literally all most <laughs> adult-oriented cartoons are. That's and... just writing comedy. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I, I do agree with Dave in that the biggest criticism I tended to hear, especially while the show was still running, was that it's the same thing every time. Because, again, it was, it was just that formula people got hung up on. But to Jonathan's point, I... I actually forgot that that was a criticism I heard a lot too, but that was like coming from different people. Whereas the people who really like, gets the same thing every time are typically people I knew in real life. A lot of times, like, um, like for example, in 12th grade, in my visual arts class uh, for my final project out of cardboard, I built a scale replica of the Dufresne Morris Evil Incorporated building. And my art teacher was like, my daughter loves this show. I find Candace so annoying. And I just don't get it because it's the same thing every time. And it was like, that was kind of, you know, the sort of people that would say that thing 
where as, as I got older and the show was kind of finishing, it was more like, for lack of a better term, the Tumblr crowd who was like, these kids don't act like kids and here's why. Yeah. But I do find, even in comparison to some other cartoons that came out in around the same era or even after, the kids do act like kids just frequently enough that you don't forget and they have these really heartwarming moments where it's like hey these are children and Phineas idolizes his teenage sister like it's yeah yeah I can't I can't put too much stock in the notion that the 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 kids are just you know unrealistic mouthpieces because I enjoyed the show when I saw scattered episodes but it was really binging and falling in love with the characters that made me fall in love with the show and and made me really really like it was getting invested in these character dynamics and the strange world they inhabit and not just the kids but like you know once I realized like wow I have like legitimate feelings about what happens to Norm yes like the jokes come first and foremost but they never really come, to my mind anyway, at the expense of the emotional investment. I want to be a real boy. <laughs> Dan made a TikTok once explaining the get on the trike joke. Um, in that a lot of people use the term like a, a cheap joke. And he's like, that is a very expensive joke. Because you spend a whole season with Phineas seeing how positive he is. And then we watched this whole hour long special scene being broken down and what got him to this point of yelling, get on the trike. That's a joke that only works if you know Phineas as a character. I think that's part of, you know, what makes the emotional moments in Phineas and Ferb hit so well when they do hit is, you know, the formula, it's the consistency. It's the fact that, you know, you know the formula. And so when they play with it or break it or stretch the characters, it's something unique and fun and it, will just in and of itself make an episode special in a way that for a lot of other shows that I don't think really happens. And I think what Roller Coaster does so well is it sets up that formula pretty much perfectly, even if there's a lot of other things that came in later. It sets up the basic formula to the point where you know everything that's going on so that when they subvert it or, or call back to something, it's like, oh yeah, that that happened. I think it was really smart to give them a roller coaster because it allowed the roller coaster to go where the rest of the plot was happening. The roller coasters by the grocery store. The roller coasters by Doofenshmirtz Evil Incorporated, and they use clever that, transitions. That's, a, that's to, a good point. I hadn't thought about that. Kind of lay out the locations of where everybody is. So as a kid, you're never confused because you're like, oh, okay. So the roller coaster is being built, and this is where it is in relation to Doof's place. And so when you start to cut back and forth, it kind of makes sense. I hadn't even thought about that, but that that makes that makes a lot of sense. And that I wonder if that's why they picked that to be the subject of the first episode, other than that it was just uh, an obvious first thing for a couple of kids who can do anything to build on their summer vacation. Well, yeah, we're gonna build not like that one at the state fair. I I think it was more. I mean, it it could have been part of the thinking behind it, but part of me feels like just as they were developing the pilot over the years, they were pitching it. I think it largely just came down to what would we most have wanted in our backyard when we were kids? I remember hearing the late Steve Hillenberg talking about when he was developing SpongeBob, he was thinking specifically about everything that he was interested in as a kid, not to like try to cheaply pander to children, but to try to remember his life as a child. And he's like, 
well, when I was a kid, I was really fascinated with ocean life. So I set my, sh I set my show underwater. When I was a kid, I thought the coolest job ever would be working at McDonald's because you could eat McDonald's food all day. So I had the character <laughs> work at a burger restaurant. And it, it, it's about capturing that childhood mindset, that, that, that child logic, that child wonder, which again is, is why I don't think the, the characters are just little adults critique really holds together because even if the dialogue is clearly written by adults, the worldviews are very authentically youthful. I think, I think that's uh, another really good point. You, you know, you write what you know. And um, Dan has said that the show was largely inspired by um, his summers, you know, and, and making Super 8 movies and all sorts of other things to try to make the most of every day of summer. And well, he was a child prodigy too. Yes, exactly. So it all, it all fits together. And same thing for Gravity Falls. That was all Alex Hirsch and his sister Ariel in those, you know, summers where they were just together the whole summer. I remember watching the Across the Second Dimension movie. It's gonna get a little a little serious here. Um, but it was when my mother was first in the hospital for her brain tumor. The song they sang about summer vacation, and at the time that was going to be my last summer vacation as a like public school student, I was the summer between 11th and 12th grade. It really put in perspective to me what a childhood summer is and how much Phineas and Ferb managed to capture that feeling of just hanging out with your siblings and friends. And that is a really useful thing that you don't ever really get back. Definitely, absolutely. That... I think that's really what the show captures so well is just that that feeling of you know childhood wonder and anything being possible. Enough said. I think yeah, I think that I think that's about it. Um, I don't I don't think we have anything else to say. Uh, Read Milo Murphy's Law on Disney Plus. <laughs> yes, watch yes. Milo Murphy's Law on Disney Plus. So, does anyone have anything they want to plug? I think Chandler mentioned it. I have a YouTube channel soon to be called the second dimension if i can get over creative burnout and actually rename it with a new video but right now it's still phineas Blah. um and i'm going to be talking more about just all sorts of types of 2d cartoons which is why the second dimension so should be exciting yes. go subscribe it's my livelihood so please i also have a youtube channel youtube.com slash doggins where i talk about everything i like <laughs> I really should be more specific with my branding, but I'm not. I've done videos about theme parks. I've done videos about Phineas and Ferb. I've done videos about Homestar Runner. I have done videos where I riff on educational shorts. I do things. Watch them. I respect Dave's opinion about Where's Perry because it's a very not often held opinion to put it so high on the specials list. And I respect that because it deserves every bit of its third place ranking. Um... Follow me on Twitter at Theme Park Trash. I sometimes link to my TikTok, and if I can get back into the swing of making videos on YouTube, I will link them there. Um, I had a series running for a while that I am trying to get back into the swing of, and I also um, pitched a really dumb idea of a video essay called Fast and Furious Supercharged Dish Crafts, and here's why. It <laughs> 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 a mistake, and here's why. Um, that I may or may not end up actually following through on. <laughs> so... <laughs>
Any anything like, that I do end up creating, I'll, I'll link it on my Twitter. If you can deal about me talking about Ducktales and Big Time Rush all the time. <laughs> oh, I have no idea what it's like to take forever to follow through on a project. <laughs> no, not at all. You can find me on Twitter at Starport97 and at the YouTube channel Starport97. I have a whole bunch of new videos planned over there, and I'm really excited for that. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Podcast Acronym. If you like this and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe. I'm on Anchor and all the other usual places. Google Play, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and at Starport97 on YouTube. If you want to help me out even more, you can pledge to me on Patreon. Just search for Chandler Deroshay. And join us next time when we talk about the original Disney TV animation show, Gummy Bears.